Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Radamic. Berto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of our show. We're going to have a great show for you today. We have quite a bit of material to cover today. How's everybody doing? I trust all is fine with everybody. Thank you guys for being here. Welcome aboard, Julie Van Astel. Good afternoon, Egberto Bridge MCP, and the rest of the beautiful people. Nanette Bird Smith, how are you doing, my dear friend? Deborah John, welcome aboard. And of course, our one and only AVQ, also AKA Michael Rodney. Hey, Michael, how you doing, brothers? How you doing, sisters? How you doing, everybody? Look, we're going to have a great show for you today. Starting out with Michael, terrifying UN draft climate report urges total transformation of our way of life. According to a terrifying, massive, and excruciating detailed report by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, which was obtained by the Agency France Press, what is happening out west is not a meteorological fluke, but a hard look at the immediate future of the planet, species extinction, more widespread disease, unbelievable heat, ecosystem collapse, cities menaced by rising seas. These are... These and other devastating climate impacts are accelerating and bound to become painfully obvious before a child born today turns 30, reports AFP. All of this is already happening and much of it cannot be stopped. This is no longer a theoretical exercise to solve a problem. This is 80 years away. This is now. Let me tell you a great thing, guys. I have it already prepared, but I'm going to play it some other time. This uh, this week, but today I interviewed. Um, let me get his name here. Today I interviewed Steve McIntosh or Stuart McIntosh. Look him up. Uh, he's written a book on climate change, and he's doing a whole lot of talking on climate change. I actually learned something on that. I learned that we had a dramatic rise in temperature about ten thousand years ago that decimated Europe and quite a bit more. We are going to go into all of that with what we spoke in that interview. That interview is for later on this week. But know that we are on top of this issue. Know that we are here to inform on this issue to make sure that when people come with the crap about, oh, this is a fluke or whatever, what Michael Rudnan just pointed out there is actually true. We have to do something. And let me tell you better. Mitigation may not be enough. Let me, let me give an example, okay? Right now we're talking about, okay, let's, let's stop it. Let's stop it at 1.5 degrees to 2 degrees centigrade. That means major changes in our coastline. That means water rising. That means a lot. The amount of money that it's going to take to create dams and dikes and support and, and to save our cities is going to be astronomical in our current economic system. You know what I'm actually thinking? I'm actually thinking we need we have technologies to mitigate carbon. We can take out a hell of a lot of carbon out of the out of the atmosphere right now using wave power and all that kind. Of, we may have to start looking at things like that right now. Because it is really bad not only with carbon, but we know there are other gases that are much more potent than carbon example, methane, ethane being released from gas wells flared and some just released in the raw the permafrost the permafrost melting that also gives off methane and other hydrocarbons that are worse worse uh, gases that cause climate change and carbon dioxide look this is serious and we talk a lot in th- that interview that we did we spoke a whole lot about a whole lot of things folks we 
we spoke about a whole lot of things in this, in this interview. So what we're talking about, folks, is simple. It, it, it is simple that what we're talking about. So um, I want you to take a look at this, okay? Seriously. Now we're going to move on to the next subject, International Criminal Court Legal Definition of Ecocide. Unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is substantial likelihood of severe and widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by these effects. Look, I'm not going to finish reading that because what I want to do today is take a look at the blog, what we're going to cover. I want to, I want to get our interview with Oyame Oliwine out first, and then we have all the rest of the day to talk about these issues because we have a lot of issues, folks. A lot of issues to talk about. So let's go ahead and let's get busy with her interview. Then we'll move on from there. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today we have a special guest. And you know, she's going to be able to cover two topics. Both our criminal justice system as well as our immigration system. And all that it entails. Olayemi Olorin, welcome to politics done right and i hope i said that correctly listen you got it Eliami. thank you, you for having today? me i'm good i'm happy to be talking to you well look let me tell you i saw you on the benjamin dixon show and i hope uh neither benjamin nor miss azor gets mad at me for going after you but i found <laughs> you so intriguing that i had to talk to you about oh. what you're doing out there in new york thank you well look um, I, I want to talk about uh, what you do first within the criminal justice system. You are you actually see how these things work on the inside. What right. is wrong with our system today? So, so you know, when you say what is wrong, it suggests like something you know, there's some kind of error, like some kind of something went haphazard along the lines. But the system works works exactly how they mean it to work. I think the criminal calling it the criminal justice system in and of itself, I think, is an intentional misnomer. They they call it that so that people buy into it. They believe in and of itself, oh, that's what it's here to do. And so when it doesn't do that, they're like, this is a mistake. It's an error. The system broke somehow. But it really is just un when I was studying, um, like when I thought I was gonna be a lawyer in undergrad and I was studying and I was reading how the criminal system is, you know, racist and corrupt, I thought it was something insidious, like something you have to like parse out and find and, you know, statistics to show it to you. It's really just on its face, on who, who to, where, down to where they put the police, what laws they pass, who they choose to arrest, how they charge it, how they treat it at arraignments. The entire thing is just deliberately set up to be on the backs of poor black and brown people. You know, it is interesting because I have I have a, a very diverse audience, and one of the things that um, people and, and not only that, and on my show I try to be extremely frank. In other words, uh, I, I I talk about the colorization. I talk about all these things within not only the criminal justice system but immigration and otherwise. And one of the things that people, a lot of uh, people on the right, generally white in my audience, and some black folk in my audience who are sort of on the right would mention, well, the FBI statistics says X, the FBI statistics says Y, and my answer to them always is BS in, BS out, which means, of course, and I think you just alluded to that, if you're arrest, if you're, if you're over-policing a, policing a particular neighborhood, why don't you expand on that rather than me uh, saying that? So, first of all, where they put the police are in black and brown neighborhoods. It's just a reality, right? You walk in, you're in Manhattan somewhere, nice, you're not going to see the police. You walk in Brooklyn, the minute you get off the train station where I'm at, the police are there, right? Also, you have to deal with the fact that 
what people think of as crime or what they're thinking the police actually do is just not what it is. That's not what you're seeing in the criminal system. The majority of my cases are absolutely nonsense. Like, oh, some poor person jumped the turnstile. Somebody had an argument with their mother. Those are the kinds of things. Oftentimes too, your clients are the ones calling the police for help. They're calling, they think, you know, the police is someone that'll just talk and de-escalate or step in or something like that. Like people will call because they're having an argument with their family member. And now the next thing you know, someone's being arrested. They have no choice of their own. And most things in the criminal system don't actually get prosecuted, right? Like the majority of the system is just like nonsense misdemeanors. They get thrown out. They don't do this. They don't make it there because these aren't about like having strong cases. It's about just where police are being placed and who they can get into the system and who they can continue these cases against. So that's really um, what it ends up looking like. It just isn't what people think it is. And we have to go against the general media narrative, right? If you watch TV, you watch the news, you watch all these different things, it's constantly being made out like crime, 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 crime is this big issue. There are all these big, bad boogeymen. That's when it was in the criminal system, but it's not. It's just other people look just like me, look just like you, doing regular things, having regular activity, things that become, you know, criminal that wouldn't be. Like I, I do the same with my friends I like to do is like watch TV, and look at how many things would be a, a criminal case if this were a black person, this were a, a, a different type of thing. Like you watch stuff and it's joke. Like I was watching How I Met Your Mother last night, first episode, Ted Mosby decides he wants to go steal the, the blue trumpet horn to give to Robin out of the restaurant. And I'm just like, and if he were black and that's Manhattan, that would be a misdemeanor and he'd be fighting that for the next year. And that's how it is. You watch things and they don't, they don't, they don't craft crime this way. The narrative isn't crafted around white people. It's not pointed out to you as crime. It's just them living. But when the narrative um, has to do with people of color, all of a sudden, it's this big woo, this boogeyman, and people are picturing this different kind of thing. And then they they go from thinking of people in the criminal system as people like them and their own part of their community to these like big, bad problems that can't be addressed or dealt with in any other way but locking them up and throwing them away. But it's, it's just not that. It is amazing because if what you're telling me, uh, most of the cases that you're handling have to do with somebody jumping a style or somebody picking up something. If it's these little things, it almost tells you that this big fear that crime is so bad. And every time you see somebody using a gun on the street on TV, that if you walk in the middle of Brooklyn, there are people, are, well, Brooklyn has several million people, right? And yeah. if you have one incident a day or five incidents a day or 10 incidents a day, yep. most of Brooklyn is just fine and likely it is, it is isolated. Yep. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 even, and even just that is the reality is this. Even if you thought crime is what it is, even if I conceded to that and I said, okay, crime is this huge problem. We have all these people committing crime and doing that, doing this. The response that still wouldn't support the idea that we need to have all these police and we need to have this expensive criminal system because if that's the case, if crime is what it is, say we have the worst crime problem ever, we have the most police employed, there's no other place putting the money into policing that America's putting into it, there's no amount of people having the amount of police, there's no many, no many places policing this much, having all these laws, having this criminal, this criminal system, so if we have this huge prison industrial complex, all this money given to the police, all this money in this, well, why is it not safe then? If that's what leads to safety, why is it not safe? New York, New York gives $11 billion to policing. You know, Brittany, Brittany Packnett, uh, I don't know if you know who she is. Yeah, she, she, yeah she's an activist. And, and uh, she made the same case actually two days ago. She Look said, we have had over the last several years an increase in the budgets for police and an increase in crime. Doesn't that right. tell you that if you're judging based on the amount of money that you put into something, that it's completely and entirely ineffective? Is yes. that correct? 
Yes, exactly. People don't want to, they don't want to talk about where crime actually comes from, the root, the root reality. I'll tell you what, I, I, and that's where I wanted to go next. So you, you anticipated my question. Give us the root. The root of crime is poverty, right? The root of crime is all these other societal social ills that we have. It's mental illness, it's, it's strife, it's stress, it's all of that. It's all linked to that. I always think it's funny because um, I've noticed this in America in general. All of America's like um, underdog stories and things that they love and people they love to champion always have a background of something that like a criminal case, some kind of this. And now all of a sudden they're this beloved person that you don't, you're not scared of, you know, what changed? What changed their resources, right? Like they, they always like, oh, they changed. They're no longer this because they don't have to be. Like people aren't choosing a life of crime. People aren't choosing to be stressed. So nobody wants to be dealing with the police. Nobody wants to have to steal anything. Nobody wants to have to fight anything. Those things happen because of other, other um, burdens and stress. Like I always try to tell people, the times in my life where I've been most likely to curse somebody out or fight somebody in the streets, I was broke. Life was hard. I was stressed out. It was this. If you alleviate the conditions that lead to this, it wouldn't happen. Like it's no coincidence that while the policing budget and mass incarceration and all this is going up, the money they're putting into the schools is going down. The money they're putting into mental health resources is going down. All of this is very, very clearly connected. And and they they choose not to see that and not but but you know what is ironic when you when you racialize uh, criminality it's amazing because I don't I don't you're probably too young to remember the crack epidemic yeah, I live I know through about the, it historically you heard about it uh, yes. the crack epidemic uh, it was a bad thing and these were super superhuman guys that were using crack of course the guys that used cocaine they didn't much bother them the reaction to the drug are the same but now we have the opioid epidemic. And now it's a disease. Uh-huh. It's an mm-hmm. issue that needs funding. It's an issue that needs all these. In other words, we're not funding the criminality that we fund. I mean, the police that we funded to handle crack back in the 80s and 90s. Right. We're funding the medical health of these yep. people who are addicts. I think that just made your case. In other words, yep. if you move the money towards what the, what did you call it? The root of the problem, it yep. seems like we would have solutions, right? Exactly. But the reality is what people don't like to say is there is some level of, you know, ignorance, right? Like people just don't know better. We've been, you know, um, we've all been fed the narrative on policing, like our whole life, everything is police. You see them there in the shows. You have every reason to believe that. I understand why people have a default in trusting the police in the criminal system. There is an aspect of that, like people don't have the information. But there's a large aspect of just not being honest about the fact that they, they want it that way. They have built a business over police. Police get money over time to arrest people. Prosecutors are getting paid. Um, the, the prisons are making money. All of this is a business. They are in the business of doing this, right? So there's that aspect. It's that, it's that road you have to tread. It's like, let me try to educate who I can educate. But we have to be honest about these people are not unaware that the system is working and how they want it to work. They know it. It's not accidentally just working like this in every single state. You know, it's, it's like this deliberately, unfortunately, but deliberately. That is one of the reasons the privatization of the criminal justice system is so, is so dangerous because when it becomes a profit motive, at that yeah. point, there's a reason to sustain uh, the way it actually works. That, that is a yeah. shame. But anyhow, um, so as a public defender, uh, I want to close out this quick section about as a public defender, the, most of the people that you find in the system are for petty things, which mm-hmm. just about says that the, the police has too much they don't have much to do none none to do nothing to do 
Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. That's a good Bahamian type uh, thing not to do. <laughs> like, not at all. I think I say that every day. I Every time I get a case of a family member, like, cursing out each other or having a dispute, I call up my family and remind them that they would all be in prison if we lived in the Bahamas. I'm like, I'm like, you, the first time I realized you could charge somebody with harassment for cursing you out, I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> I have narrowly evaded custody. <laughs> like, so it's it's unbelievable the stupidness you read. I open the case all I'm like, sometimes I literally I have to say it on the record. I'm like, Your Honor, read this. I can't. Let's be serious. Let's have a serious. And it'll be crazy because you would think when you point out ridiculous and people like the shame, the shame would stop them. No, the prosecutor will be next to me, double down, like. I'll be like, listen, I have the complainant here. The complainant says that ain't happened. They call the police, da da da. There's a disclosure. They're like, we're not prepared to dismiss any charges at this time. I'm like, then you, if you're not prepared, you better dismiss. They, the, the very, very first case I ever, ever arraigned as a public defender, this guy was accused of criminal trespassing, right? At his own house address. But here's the best part on by the police's own, they gave him a ticket. On the ticket, they have to take his license, write his address on the ticket, his home address. They wrote the home address, the same address as they're saying he was trespassing. I literally say, I'm like, Your Honor, I'm like, I'm gonna make a show of this. I'm like, if everybody could just turn their attention, let's read. My client is accused of trespassing at this address. Flip to the next page for his home address, same address. Prosecutor still would not dismiss. Like, wouldn't why would he dismiss? Because they cannot bring themselves to not double down on the investment in this goofy system. That is a prime shame. Anyhow, um, for all my audience, they can listen that just as I have uh, an accent, you also have one. You are from the Bahamas. I heard you tell a story about how difficult it is for some people who've done their, who've come to this country, played their part, as you are a public defender working very hard within the system and you're still having issues with immigration when others don't, why don't you tell us that story? <laughs> it's, um, it's an uphill battle that for me, I'm lucky enough that it even is a battle because for a lot of people, there's just simply no option. It's not even available to you um, at all. Like anytime anyone asks me, I was having this conversation with my big sister the other day because the U.S. immigration system is so impossible that people have a hard time believing it is. They see you there and they ask you, you know, how did you do it? And when you when you basically tell them, there's no way for you to replicate this, you know what I mean? It's the same, what do I tell you? Go back 13 years, go to a bunch of schools, so find hundreds of thousands of dollars, pay for a bunch of education, do OPT, work a lot of jobs to the bone, you can't collect no money and hope and pray to God you manage to land on the right lottery situation where you could get a visa, you know? So it's, in, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to be able to stay. Like I have a sister just as competent as me, literally on the med school path or whatever, graduated with all the honors, had to end up going to med school in the Caribbean. I have, it, I've seen it happen more times than not. Most international students who I went to school with and boarding school aren't here anymore. A lot of Bahamians that I know aren't here anymore because it's just so, it's so unfeasible and inaccessible to us. And what's the solution? Because, I mean, how, what's your solution? How are you going to, what, what, are, what do you plan on doing? Well, there needs to be more routes to citizenship. That's the first thing, right? Like, the, the reality is you can't apply for citizenship unless you're married, um, you get married, or you have a green card or some or permanent residency in some way. And you can't get those from even most of the visa outlets. If you could even manage to get a student, a student visa or work visa, anything, those still don't guarantee you routes to citizenship. And getting a work visa is 
like there's a cap on the system. It's incredibly expensive. There are wait lists that are 10 years and plus long dependent on what kind of, so the first thing they need to do is people who come on student visas should automatically have a right, like access to a work visa and ability to get a green card. If people are there, they're legally there for a certain amount of years, they should automatically have an avenue. Second, they need to make these processes way less expensive. Like, and not only is it expensive to pay for, but a lot of times, even for the student visas, you have to be able to show like at one time that whoever's your sponsor, your parent can pay for years and years of school at once in their bank statement. They have to show that or they can't get it, even if they don't have to. Like for law school, I went to law school in a full scholarship. Um, but the tuition was 53,000 or something like that a year for them to give me my work, my student visa for me to be able to go to law school where I got a full scholarship already. My daddy had to be able to show financially that he would be able to pay this amount, this tuition every year, even though he doesn't have to. And they show like they make him provide an affidavit of support or you have to provide this amount of much more money or they can't get it. So they already make it so poor people have no access to that system at all. That's, that's wild. I, I, it's, it's incredible. So People don't realize that. And I think that's the first thing that needs to happen. There needs to be actual routes where people could stay illegally. And, you know, for those who said, well, look, uh, you, you take what you can get. This isn't your country. I mean, I, I would love to hear your response because I do have a response, but I'm, interest, I'm interested in yours. Um, you know, I don't really care about too much what they have to say. Like, I don't even really even get into because there's just no merit there. And like, why? Why engage you? Because you could be as mad as you want to be. I'm still here. Right. Like. As far as I look at it, it's like, this is the life that I built. The same way people feel attachments to anything that they've built, anything they've done with an investment, anything they've done right, wrong, or not, nothing. I, everything that I have, I earned. I came here uh, legally, not that I think it matters in terms of your investment or your place and your right to feel attached to a country you built your home, but nevertheless, I came here legally. I went to your schools. I got all your degrees. I cleaned up. I took the bar. I passed. I'm here. I'm a contributing member of society. I don't really care how you feel. Um, about it. And honestly, if I had the same kind of mentality you have, what's likely is you probably wouldn't be sitting in this country either, right? Because I don't know how many people are just true-blooded Americans go all the way back, you know? It's this it's land. You're, that's, you're, the answer. You're... that's the answer I was waiting for. That's yes. the answer. That's the answer I was waiting for. In other words, this is one this country in particular, all of us in this hemisphere have a right to be here. Yes, okay. we know that certain things have to be done for paperwork, but Everybody on this hemisphere has the exactly. right to be here. Exactly. You know, and I, I think it, it's time for us to, it, it's time for people to stop being apologetic or, 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 or relegating themselves to some sort of second class uh, personhood or something like that. And people really feel like you should be. And they feel like it's, it's okay to talk to you that way. I've, I've experienced it even from like people who are like your friends or they're like, you know, they, they engage with you in this way that it's like, ultimately, they don't think this is their country. This isn't yours. This isn't da 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 But the way I've navigated that is this. I remember once being really upset about an immigration. Somebody said something to me offensive. I can't remember what it was in law school, but I call my daddy very upset. And <laughs> my daddy's a Nigerian man. And I'm like telling him, telling him, and I'm so upset. Da, da, da. And my daddy was like, is that all? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And, he was, and I was like. I like your dad. Yeah, my daddy, how old is he? No, I said, I like your dad. Oh, yeah, 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 my daddy. So he goes, um, I was like, yeah, well, daddy. And, and he was like, allow me. You go to the people's country. I expect more pushback than that. He's like, you've gone to their schools, you beat them in the schools, you do all these things. That's what I anticipate. And I was like, you know what? That's true. You know what I mean? Like, no other space I've existed in before as a black woman is this. They don't want me there either. They have a lot of comments for, for, for some reason or another. There's always something to say. And if I, you know, 
allowed myself to move or be or be affected based on the whims of others or what they think I'm entitled to or what I think I've right to. I wouldn't accomplish nothing or any of the things I have. So that's not my business. They could be as mad as they want to be about it. I'm here. Alarn, tell me. Oh, I, I I mess up your name all the time. Oh, they me tell. Yeah, tell me something that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you. You should have asked me that you did not ask me. Um, and let's, let me also tell you that I love when people have to look in the ear first because it tells me I must have asked them quite a bit of stuff already. Yeah, 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 you covered. Um, I don't know, maybe uh, what I want to see happen. What I do you think, want? Yes. I think the narrative is what's got to change. A lot of what um, is able to go down is just because people have controlled the narrative and they prevented other stories from coming out. And I think as it pertains to immigration, immigrants have, are just not in the position to be our own advocates so much of the time. Like people, are, while I'm going through my immigration stuff for so many years, they're like, oh, you should tell people about this if they knew this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how am I tell them when I have a pending um, you know, visa application in front of USCIS? I can't do that. Like I'm not in a position you know, to do it. And that's what happens so often is, Immigrants, while they're going through it, they're not in a position to talk about it. And by the time they are, things have gone south. You know what I mean? They're, they have to go rebuild a life somewhere else. So I feel like um, what I really want to see happen is people really have an understanding that people cannot just do it the right, they, right way. They can't just come here. They can't just apply for citizenship. Because I think when that changes, when people, it will be harder for um, politicians to get up on stage and say empty things like that to people like and just not offer any routes to citizenship because people will finally have real understanding of the system and what needs to change. Immigration is one of those things they talk about ad nauseum just every year since I've been in this country and I have never heard that the policy ain't changed once since I've been here. I've got to see, I'm like, so it's because people don't know. So what I want to do is I want to see the narrative change. I want people to be aware, like your immigration, your immigration situation is actually a little bit raggedy. The system is a little bit, it's got, it's got a lot to improve and we need routes. So that. Olayemi, Lauren, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Your energy is palpable, and not only that, but it's transmissible. You have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Bye. We spend a lot of time. Hey, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. that. But you know what? Before we even get started, we have a new member of the PDR Posse. Welcome, Linda Harvey. Welcome to the PDR Posse. Thank you so kindly. And since you started it off, let's go ahead and continue it. Folks, if you want to become a part of the PDR Posse, please go ahead and hit that uh, join button if you are on YouTube. If you are on YouTube, please go ahead and hit that join button. If you are not on YouTube, you can still join the PDR Posse by going to this link right here, politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube politicsunright.com slash YouTube. And if you notice, Linda's name is on the screen with her little screenshot there for being our most recent member. Would you like to get your, your you know, we love to give you some recognition. So do it now and we'll throw you up there as well. Folks, there are several ways that you can support this program. You can also support us via becoming a patron. Patron is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. That is politicsdoneright.com slash patron politicsandright.com slash p-a-t-r-e-o-n you can also support us via paypal politicsandright.com slash paypal and by the way folks you know we have a cup designed by our pdr posse leader bridge mcp check those out coming on the screen right this minute you can see what our cup looks like do you want to get one of those cups support us by getting one of those cups 
Go to the link that you see on the screen right now to go ahead and support it. You can get that link everywhere, everywhere that you see that link. Now, you can also shop for our books and everything else at our store, politicsandright.com slash store. Look, by, by getting our T-shirts, our books, our at the store, you really help the program. You help us be able to continue doing what we do. Now, some people rather buy directly from Amazon. You can go ahead to Amazon and get it at politicsandright.com slash books, politicsandright.com slash books. And, of course, you can always give a super chat at uh, uh, at YouTube. Anyhow, here is the, these are the books that we have. My books, as I see it, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. That's the first book that I wrote. That is a book that talks about how our entire economic system works, etc., etc., Easy to understand, and it puts it in a context that you can, that you get it. The second book is How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. Why do we need that book? We can't solve America's problems one plus one equal two. We have to solve it by bringing all the other folks that we think doesn't want to listen to us. We got to bring them into the fold. I'm sorry. We got to bring them into the fold. And there are, there are techniques that we can try to use to do that. Not going to win them all, but you're going to win them some. And the last book, the one that I just wrote, How to Make America Utopia. It is, it is what I call a book in progress. It's my ideas as far as how do we make things better. And then, of course, it is going to be tied. It's currently already tied to our politicsandright.com slash PDRPASI site page that we're going to populate later. And in the long run, it's going to have a, well, we already have a chat thing there, a forum thing there that I'm going to want to hear from people because in, uh, later online iterations of the books, I would like to have all of your ideas because w- making America utopia isn't my vision or your individual vision. It is our vision as far as what we want our system to look like. And once you can envision what you want your system to look like, you can actually start hiring people to build that system. And what do I mean by hiring people to build that system? Electing those who share in that dream of that utopia. And people, oh, uh, you're, that you, never happened. Look, every society starts with a dream. Every society starts with what you would want it to be. And then you make it so. All right. Um, so, folks, please consider, again, click that join button to become a part of our posse. Or go to politicsandright.com slash Patreon. Or politicsandright.com slash books. Or politicsandright.com slash PayPal. Any one of those, you're helping us out. Uh, let's see. Julie Van Asdel, yes, late. Sold my house today. Congratulations, Julie Van Asdel, for selling your home. Uh, let's see who else we got here. Who else we got here that I need to answer? Let's see. Deborah John says, in reality, politicians have no interest in solving the root of the problems because it is not convenient for them. The prison system is a multi-billion dollar money-making machine run by mafia mobs, and they need to keep them filled. And we've actually convicted people who have actually convicted people to keep it filled. Green energy check, it's really clean. Um, I am not, look, I am not going to get into the discussion with those who are trying to find everything that may be not perfectly green with the green energy. I am not. Because you're missing the point. Bridge, you sold yours too. Good for you, girl. It's a seller's market, man. It's a seller's market. I hope you made a hell of a capital gains on it so that you can get to your another home and have a few bucks to retire on. Okay, let's see what else we got here. Uh, join, support, and buy our PDR Posse mug from Bridge MCP. 
Uh, let's see. I, I saw another thing I wanted to read. Arrested for trespassing in his own home. Yeah, that's what happened. I'm afraid of your Yahweh. I ain't afraid of your Allah. I ain't afraid of your Jesus. I ain't afraid of... This sounds like E2247. How are you doing, brother? Maywood, welcome aboard, my dear beautiful lady. Brooklyn here. I don't worry about crime at all. I mean, you know, as, as she said, crime is, you know, there's a bit of increase in crime, but it's the reason they're doing it, it's all a setup. It's all a setup. But guess who fell into the setup? You know, they wanted to tag progressives with defund the police. Guess who actually defunded the police? Let's take a look at this video by Jen Psaki. And then we'll move on from there, my brothers and sisters. It looks like the Democratic Party may have finally learned something from the Republican Party. How to use a narrative and stick you with it. And the new narrative is, as you know, the Republicans have constantly been trying to assign to Democrats the defund the police moniker. Let's be, let's be fair, first of all. I believe that we need to move money from police, the police into other aspects of uh, taking care of people. Meaning, if you create more policies that are positive in neighborhoods, it'll reduce crime. It would, n it would remove the necessity of having a whole lot of over-policing in these neighborhoods. I believe that. But, you know, in politics, narrative is everything. And it turns out that... Uh, with crime rates increasing, one of the things that Republicans wanted to do was assign the blame to these defund the police Democrats, right? Well, as, as uh, Cunningham had said, Paki uh, Kapaknet uh, Cunningham had said, if we were judging the, uh, the results based on how we fund the police, the police would be a complete failure because as we have increased their funding, uh, crime has not really gotten better per se. But anyhow... We have now used that narrative against Republicans because, you know, while Biden was for making sure police officers remain funded during this pandemic and otherwise, the Republicans voted no. So the ones who have actually effected a vote to defund the police are Republicans. And you know what? Democrats are starting to let them pay for that. Narrative is everything. Check this out. Something one of the advisors said this weekend, Cedric Richmond, he said, Republicans defunded the police by not supporting the American Rescue Plan. But how is it that that is an argument uh, to be made when the president never mentioned needing money for police to stop a crime wave when he was selling the American Rescue Plan? Well, the president did mention that the American Rescue Plan, the state and local funding, something that was supported by the president, a lot of Democrats who supported and voted for the bill, could help ensure uh, local cops were kept on the beat in communities across the country. As you know, didn't receive a single Republican vote. That funding has been used to keep cops on the beat. But at the time, that was sold as uh, these local police departments might have a pandemic-related budget shortfall, not we need to keep cops on the beat because there's a crime wave. Uh, I think that any local uh, department would argue that keeping cops on the beat to keep communities safe when they had to, because of budget shortfalls, fire police is, is something that helped them address yes. crime in their local communities. In local communities. The White House's argument was the American Rescue Plan is going to be $1,400 checks. It's going to be vaccines, vaccinators. Uh, we're, it's going to put us on the path to beating the virus. Not. It did those things as well. It was a pretty good bill and piece of legislation. Well, Steve Ducey probably got his lesson. This is the second time he's attempted to 
he, he opened the door last week for Jen Psaki to say, remember, it's you guys who we could consider the ones who've defunded the police. Now, since Democrats have sort of run with that narrative, you know, on, on, a, on the news programs, one of the guys came out and said, yes, uh, Republicans voted to defund the police, and he wants to rehabilitate the, the Republicans. He needs to make the, the Republicans whole. We can't let that stick. Well, he brought it up, and Jen Psaki just went ahead and provided the evidence a bit more in detail. No, you guys all voted against the American Rescue Plan, which funded the police officers. You guys defunded them. Let's get it straight. Excellent reversal of narrative. Great job again, Jen Psaki. And you know, the funny thing about it is, when the left in general makes their case, it is based on truth and accurate information. When you hear the right making a case, it's always a lie, a misinformation, or misguided. I mean, it is amazing. And, you know, I, I was reading uh, Tom Hartman this morning. And Tom, Tom Hartman had a great article. And in the article, he said, one of the problems with Democrats is they don't know how to fight the same way Republicans know how to fight. And he said that uh, it, it, they, they fight like the natives, the, the natives in America. The natives in America believe if, if you get as bad as the persons who are trying to kill you, oppress you, or otherwise, you become just as bad as they are. So they refrain from doing that. But in refraining from doing that, they lost their country. That's the essence of, of Tom Hartman's article this morning. And when I read that article, I'm like, yeah, there's, some, there's a middle ground. You can, you can, you can fight them hard. And as you fight them, you remind yourself, you are only doing this because this is the only way to do good. You fight them with their bullets, but you're only doing it to do good. And when you win, you go back to being the most ethical person that you want to be. You want to hear something that is interesting? Read down in the blog that I wrote. In a blow to GOP narrative, Missouri cut to jobless benefits not boosting hiring. Remember the thing was, oh, Biden is giving them $300 a week. And because Biden is giving them $300 a week, they don't want to work anymore. Those lazy, those lazy left-wingers, of course, Missouri is not a bunch of left-wingers, neither is West Virginia or all these places. But they, are, they can't get people to work. People, stop, people have learned, why do I want to work for pennies? They, do, they calculate at the back of, back of the envelope. If I go to work, and I spend all my money in gas, taking care of my kids, meaning putting them in daycare. And when I'm done busting my butt, I can still barely eat a full meal. I am not a worker. I'm a slave. That's what I am, a slave. And what the pandemic gave a lot of Americans the time to do was to sit back. And think, I can either be a working poor or just poor. Do you prefer being a working poor or just poor? Just poor is more effective because while you're just poor, you can at least be improving yourself so that you can get out of poverty. But when you're working poor, you're stuck. And that's what the plutocracy knows. Remember what I always tell you about your minds in chains. If I keep your mind in chains... 
I don't have to have the chains. I just have to leave you in that condition. And I will be forever able to take advantage of you. And that is where America is right now. For a lot of those low-wage workers, that's where we have them. So Missouri is a perfect test case. A month, not giving the people that extra money. And they still can't find folks to work. I love that. It's called poetic justice. Poetic justice. All right, let's go ahead and listen to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez relative to, you know, we, need, we have a whole lot of stuff we got to get past, but check her out. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez appeared on Meet the Press today, and she did not disappoint. And what she did is really made the case for disregarding the filibuster, for doing reconciliation where necessary. But what she did specifically was show how erred cinema uh, is with respect to her position on the filibuster. And likewise, uh, the senator from West Virginia, Manchin. Let's listen to her, and I have a few things to say on the other side. I know where you stand on the filibuster. So I'm curious what you thought of Senator Simina's uh, op-ed where she made this defense of keeping the filibuster. And she wrote, would it be good for our country if we did, uh, did this, basically using the filib- uh, getting rid of the filibuster, only to see that legislation rescinded a few years from now and replaced by a nationwide voter ID law or restrictions on voting by mail in federal elections over the objections of the minority? Uh, look, the argument she's making is, Let's say you get rid of the filibuster, you get all of this progressive change that you would like to see, and then all of a sudden the roles are reversed and everything gets rolled back. Um, Is that a good enough defense to you for the filibuster? No. I mean, it is... uh it's essentially an argument of saying, well, why do anything at all in case something in the future may change it? Uh, political systems all across the country, I mean, all across the world, uh, pass legislation with majorities and they're fine. And frankly, here's the thing, is that democratic legislation, once enacted, is popular. Republicans have tried to gut Social Security. They've tried to reverse the ACA. They've tried to claw back on legislation that has passed by simple majorities in the Senate, and they haven't been able to because Democratic policies are popular. And once they are enacted, they are very politically difficult to undo. And so, you know, I do not believe in the defeatism of saying we will lose in the future and uh, that and this will automatically uh, mean that anything we do now is going to be reversed, so we might as well not do anything now. Our job is to legislate. Our job is to help people. Our job is to do as much as we can. And even if that's the case, even if that is the case, wouldn't it be better to get people health care and voting rights for three years instead of zero years? Even if even if you concede the point that I don't even think is true in the first place. And so beyond that, then the argument is, okay, why 60 votes? Why not stop at 70 votes? Why not need 80 votes to pass any legislation? Why defend a 60-vote filibuster when the Senate already amplifies a minority power so that the 50 Democratic senators already represent millions and millions and millions more Americans than 50 Republican senators? And so I would argue that 50 Republican senators is already a built-in kind of filibuster-esque firewall. I mean, let's first of all, 
make the point, a very important point. We are there to legislate, and that's what we do. We pass laws. We don't expect supermajorities. The point that she ended with is very important. There are 50 Republicans and 50, 50 Democratic senators. And the truth of the matter is those 50 Republicans re represent a whole of a lot less people than the 50 Democrats. So that is, a, as she stated, a built-in filibuster by having 50 Republican senators because the Senate is by no means Democratic. Small states get two senators and large states get two senators. California has about 40 million, 50 million people and one of these states have just about a million people and they get two senators. That is completely, utterly undemocratic. But here's what she also points out that every Democrat should remember. The reason why people want to put restrictions, Republicans and some centrist Democrats want to put restrictions by supporting the filibuster is they know one, on, one inconvenient truth. And that is when democratic policies pass, it is very hard to remove them because people like them, because they are humane. They're not corporate centric for that when they pass that is good social policies that are progressives i'm not talking about corporate policies here now secondly what she says uh everybody should think about isn't it best to give them three good years of good policy instead of zero years and let's put that into context because if you give them three years of good policy it is unlikely then when you go campaign to get reelected that they will throw you out given that they know throwing you out will deny them the policies that they already got and like. I mean, it's a cogent message that every Democrat out there, every progressive out there should be pushing. Very important. I tell you one corollary here in Texas. The, uh, the, the Affordable Care Act provided for the Medicaid expansion to the Affordable Care Act. And Texas decided to deny it. And one of the excuses they gave to their people is, well, we don't want to pass it. Even though the first three years they get the Affordable Care Act, the Medicaid expansion to the Affordable Care Act for zero. It costs them nothing to insure Texans for three years. And after that three years, they bear 10% of the cost. They said, no, we rather give our state nothing. Even though our state is already paying for it, we rather give them nothing. And we rather not give them 10 cents on the dollar afterwards because we just don't like the policy. We don't care about people. So what we do is we cause the purposeful death of Texans and every red state governor and red state Republican Party that supported not uh, the affordable that supported denying their citizens the Medicaid expansion to the Affordable Care Act committed manslaughter in those particular states. They committed murder in those particular states. They knowingly issued policies that caused the death of their citizens. Democrats need to put these things in words that Americans can understand. Our, uh, policies from the progressive side help. Progress, uh, policies from the progressive side ensure your success. 
policies on the other side kills. And this is not hyperbole. This is fact. Ocasio-Cortez, excellent rebuttal to why the filibuster must go. The undemocratic filibuster must go. Okay, and this one is simply for me uh, because of, you know, I like... I like this guy, Miranda, but I think he had a boo-boo, and, but some people... Well, check this out and you'll see my thoughts. Today, Tiffany Cross, once again, was on point. She had a takedown on Bill Moore that is overdue. I loved Bill Moore in the earlier years, and I found him witty, and he was generally on point. I don't know what happened to Bill Moore over the last few years. In fact, I don't watch him anymore because, again, I found that there is something different. It's almost as if he needed to change identity. There are people who say, oh, as you get older, you get more conservative. Well, as I get older, I get more progressive, more liberal, because I get more frank, I get more fair, I get more uh, everybody deserve what they are worth, etc. Let's listen to this Tiffany Cross takedown, and we'll take it on the other side. I did see the clip segment of him complaining about Lin-Manuel Miranda apologizing for the lack of Afro-Latino representation in his movie, In the Heights. You're the guy who made the founding fathers black and Hispanic. I don't think you have to apologize to Twitter. I mean, he's a Latino making a Latino movie with a Latino cast. Not good enough. Nothing is ever good enough for these people. They're like children. Let's just address a few things. One, I thought it was not only gracious, but appropriate for Lin-Manuel Miranda to acknowledge the perhaps unintentional colorism in his amazing film and then apologize for it. Two, anybody find it interesting that this quote-unquote liberal ally is sounding a lot like a moderate Fox News contributor? This is why allies get the side-eye sometimes. And three, Bill Maher, you do not get to tell people of color what they should or should not be offended by. Maybe instead of trying to invoke sympathy for Sharon Osbourne or making sure Tommy Loren has a space to spouse her BS, you should have more diverse panels of people who can explain colorism to you and systemic racism and how these things still devastate people's lives and livelihoods today. Try that instead of standing on your alabaster perch every week to crap on other people's lived experience while providing a safe haven for well-established white supremacists. I think you're mistaking what's happening now as a revolution, the favoring of a new system, and look, perhaps you disagree with that. But this is yet another of your perspectives that's embarrassingly ignoring what's happening all around you that you're refusing to see. The truth is, what's happening now is an evolution, and you are fighting for your power and privilege to not become fossilized while basking in the rays of your own non-existent cleverness and comedy bits circa three decades ago. And quite frankly, it's just offensive at this point. The country, like it or not, is changing in real time. And sadly, fake time with Bill Maher is not. So perhaps it's time for you to take a step back and blow a quarter ounce of that green that you love so much, because clearly your thoughts have been lost in a white fog for far too long. First of all, Tiffany didn't touch this, but it kind of, I'm surprised she didn't. Uh, he said, nothing is ever enough for these people. Specifically, Bill Maher, who are these people? But the second subject that is of concern is that he jumped into an issue that he knows nothing about, the colorization of the Latinx community. Why didn't he maybe 
ask his producers to ask questions. Miranda himself comes out and says, you know, uh, he implied, I may have had some sort of implicit bias towards what I look at as Latino. You know, uh, just like for a long time in America, black folks have been uh, invisible when it comes to many things. Just as well in the Latino community, Afro-Latinos have been invisible. A, a little quick example here. I'm, in I'm on the board of several organizations. And this particular one, we had a subcommittee, a subgroup. And that subgroup comprised of a, a couple of white people and three Latinos, me being the Afro-Latino, another Latino that was uh, of Mexican descent, another Latino of, you know, fair-skinned uh, Dominican descent. And we were talking several issues, and one time I were deciding, and by the way, I did represent this group on TV for Latin, uh, for a Latino, ex-Afro-Latino uh, issue on TV that we did a little piece. But anyhow, during this discussion, it was something that we needed Latinos collaboration to, to do something. And one of the persons said, you know, hey, other, other Latino on the group, since we are the only two Latinos in this group, maybe we should do this. You know, I was invisible, right? I was invisible. The Afro-Latino there was invisible. And this person didn't do it out of malice. It was just implicit bias that also occurs in the Latinx community. The idea that Bill Maher would look at what else does these people want? The idea it is simply recognition for like everybody else. The fact of the matter is the only reason, first of all, Latinos as a group are speaking up. And specifically within that Latino group, Afro-Latinos are also speaking up. Is because now there is the power to do it. The door is now more open for people to not accept what they had to accept in the past. So it is simple. As we mature as a community and as different groups get more power, they are less concerned about what would happen if they speak up. What they do is speak up. Bill Maher was completely out of his league. And I think what he should do is probably take a class and understand what is going on not only in communities in America but communities in the Latinx community where it comes to colorization and much more. That was my beef with Bill Maher and I, when I saw that uh, Tiffany Cross did it, it was like, wow, she did it. That was great. It's something if she hadn't done, I would have gone and plastered it all over the place as well. So thank you very much because you know, uh, it, it, these things are not complex if we just have a bit of empathy. Anyhow, folks, we are coming close to the end of the show. Thank you so kindly for being there. Remember that if you are on YouTube, click that join button, become a member. You know what we do? We try to enlighten. We try to promote. We try to do things that get people knowledge about what's going on, what they won't necessarily hear on mainstream media. So click that join button, become a part of our PDR posse. Alternatively, become a part of our Patreon, politicsonright.com slash patron, spell P-A-T-R-E-O-N, politicsonright.com slash patron. Support us on PayPal, politicsonright.com slash PayPal, politicsonright.com slash PayPal, or get our books, politicsonright.com slash books, politicsonright.com slash books. Look, I know you guys could be anywhere. Podían estar donde quieran. O donde querían. Pero están aquí conmigo. But you're here with me. Muchas gracias. Thank you so kindly. Estoy bien agradecido. 
Estoy bien agradecido. Te voy a decir algo. I'm going to tell you something. I don't think you guys understand what it's like when you decide to, that you are going to be an activist, when you decide that you are going to be taking a part of activism that puts your face in front of thousands and that the acceptance is there to listen to your words, to listen to you, to interact with you, to engage you. That is like a nuclear fission reaction. It makes you want to do so much more for the cause. It makes you want to do so much more for the cause. Welcome aboard, Paula Faison Johnson. Welcome aboard. So thank you guys for being here. I couldn't do it without you. Let me see if there's anybody I didn't call out. E2247, I think I got you. Uh, well, you know, I'd like to call everybody out. Eric Hayes, I think I called you Maywood. I think I called you Julie Van Astel. Uh, para ver quien más está aquí. Uh, uh, if I missed you, forgive me. But I got to get out of here. I have a whole lot of wood to move outside. Anyhow, my name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you guys know how I'm going to end this baby. Alisa, or rather Linda Harvey, thank you for becoming a member today. You know I, how I end this baby. I am what? No, I got to do it right for the podcast. This is Politics Done Right. My name is Egberto Willis, and you know how I'm going to end this baby. I am what? Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.